Good morning. I'm going to be reading from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered waters, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and to all the birds of the air and the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. On August 4th, 1976, Jerry Ryan Hanley gave birth to her second son. And they quickly realized um, what a good-looking young man this son was going to be, so they gave him the Irish name Kevin, which means handsome. When Kevin was five years old, when he was in kindergarten, he got suspended from kindergarten for biting a chunk of skin out of the arm of Susanna Nagel. When he was eight years old, his Sunday school teacher had to have a conference with him and his mom because he was disrupting the Sunday school class. Uh, When he was 16, when he was 16, much to his father's dismay, he gave up practicing the violin and picked up his guitar. And then in uh, 2009, Kevin pulled off the the courtship heist of the century, uh, marrying a woman so far out of his league that the only rational explanation is that she, like Titania in A Midsummer Night's Dream, had a love potion dripped in her eyes so that she would fall in love with the first creature that she met immediately before she met Kevin. And then uh, two years uh, after they moved to Rivervale, uh, Kevin set a world speed record uh, after they had come to realize that uh, his wife was quite a bit farther along in her labor than they had originally anticipated. Their good friend and doula, Gail, said to Kevin as they were rushing to get her ready to go to the hospital, she said to Kevin, she said, Kevin, if, if she starts to push you're going to have to pull over and we're going to give, give birth to your firstborn daughter in the back of your Honda Civic. And the, the trip from here to the Valley Hospital normally takes 15 to 20 minutes, and Kevin made it in seven minutes flat. Over the last six years, Kevin and Laura have been blessed with a family with two kids and an amazing church family to serve and do ministry. That's an overview of my story. That's my story. And we we all have stories. We all have our own individual stories. Just this past past Monday, we celebrated my daughter's fourth birthday. And birthdays are a day in which you celebrate stories. This is when you, you celebrate our individual stories. So, we celebrated Grace's story and we reflected on the memories that we have made over the last four years and, 
and we looked at pictures and all of this sort of thing, and we just celebrated her story. And it's important for us to do that. It's important for us to celebrate our own individual stories. But of course, uh, last Monday when we celebrated my daughter's birthday was the 4th of July. And although my daughter still thinks that the fireworks are given in her honor, we all know that the fireworks point us to something else. And here's what they point us to. They point us to the reality that there is a bigger story than our own individual stories. That as Americans, we understand that there is a story that is bigger than our own story. And that's at the heart of what of what good patriotism is about. Patriotism is an awareness that there is a story, the story of our nation, that is bigger than our own individual story. And patriotism calls us to look beyond ourselves, beyond our own story, to the bigger story of our country, that that when people, uh, when, when they give their lives to serve their country in various ways, this is ultimately what it stems from, is this understanding that their story really needs to submit and surrender to this bigger story that is the story of our nation. That's what the 4th of July reminds us of. But when we gather together on Sunday morning, we are reminded that there is an even bigger story. There's an even bigger story. There's a, there's a story that's, that's, that's bigger than my daughter's story. There's a story that's bigger than my own story. There's a story that's bigger than our nation's story. There is a much bigger story. Today we are beginning a new series called The Story. And really what it's going to be over the next several months, we're just going to be looking at the Bible. We're going to do an overview of the Bible. We're going to look at select passages from Genesis to Revelation, and the idea is to sort of give us a, a big picture overview of the Bible. I think for a lot of us, uh, when we pick up the Bible, we're just confused. There are passages that we don't, we don't understand. We don't know what they mean, how they apply to our lives. And so the hope is that by giving us sort of an overarching perspective, it will help us to understand how all of the different passages in the Bible sort of sort of fit together. So we're going to be looking at the the overarching picture. Now, when we look at the Bible, one of the first questions we need to ask is we need to ask ourselves, what kind of a book is it? What kind of a book is it? This is an important question to ask when you read any book, right? I mean, what kind of a book is it? You know, if you, if you, uh, uh, if you, if you pick up Romeo and Juliet and you're expecting it to be an algebra textbook, you're going to be confused. Uh, if you pick up Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason and you're looking for a recipe uh, for dinner that evening, you're going to be confused. Honestly, you're going to be confused even if you know what kind of book that is. But anyway, if you don't know what kind of a book it is and you try to pick it up, you're going to be really confused. And I, would sus- and I would suggest that for a lot of us, one of the reasons why we're often confused when we pick up the, pick up the Bible is that we don't really understand What kind of a book is it? And what I want to put forth for you today and throughout this series is that the Bible is a story. It's a story. It's a true story. But it's a story. 
It's a story, and if we want to understand the Bible, we want to understand what's going on in there, we need to understand that the Bible is a story. And, and so, um, so, for example, the Bible is not primarily an instruction book. It's not primarily a, an owner's manual for life. Of course, if you're looking for instruction, if you're looking for direction on how to lead your life, the Bible is exactly where you want to look, but you need to understand what kind of a book it is. It isn't really an instruction manual. If you think about it, if it's an instruction manual, it's not organized very well at all. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if it was like an owner's manual for life, you'd think you would flip open the table of contents and you would find, you know, chapter one, how to have a great marriage. Uh, chapter 2, the challenges of the adolescent years, you know, I mean, and on and on, just sort of by category, and then what happens when you open up the Bible, you open up the table of contents, and it says Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you see, if it's an owner's manual, an instruction manual, it's really not organized very well, so it's not an owner's manual, it's, it's, it's a story, it's not a, a book of philosophy, it's not a book of philosophy that just sort of gives us timeless wisdom. I mean, it, it has uh, timeless wisdom in it. Uh, it has a whole section, the wisdom literature. Uh, yeah, it, it, it has what you might call philosophy in it, but, but that actually all fits into the overarching narrative, the overarching story of the Bible. Remember, the Bible isn't just one book. It's a collection of books, 66 Old Testament books, 39 New Testament books, and all of the books are different and have their own genre and form and all of this, this sort of thing. But when you pull it all together, when you pull all the pieces together, what you discover is that the whole thing, the best way of explaining it, is that it is a story. It's not a book of philosophy. And so uh, an important implication of this, for example, <clears throat> is that the Bible doesn't simply tell us what is true. The Bible tells us what was true what is true, and what will be true. The Bible doesn't just tell us what is true. It tells us what was true, what is true, and what will be true. In fact, even when we look at God, even when the Bible talks about God, I think this is quite interesting. In Revelation chapter 4, I'll just read this for you. Revelation chapter 4, we sort of get a a glimpse of things from a heavenly perspective. You, you get these, these angels, these weird, crazy-looking angels, and they're, they're, they're you know, sitting around singing and praising God. And I want you to listen to how they, how they describe God. It says, Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You see, even in their understanding of God, they don't just say God is. They say God was. He is, and He is to come. Even their understanding of God seems to follow this, this idea of a story. The Bible is a story. It's not a, a book of philosophy. And so one important implication, one very practical implication of this is that, you see, for Christians, Christians don't really ask the question, why? We ask the question, when? You see, why is a philosophical question, but the Bible isn't really a book of philosophy, it's a story. So we don't really ask the question, why? We ask the question, when? You see, and this completely changes your attitude towards suffering, right? The sort of great philosophical question, why is there suffering? Why is there suffering? And, and Christians, you see, we don't really even attempt to answer that. We don't we'll say, why is there suffering? We say, when? When, God, will you make it right? We sang the song, How Long, 
and that's, that's a when question. It's when. God, when will you make things right? When will you put an end to this? I mean, just this past week, when we look at the tragedy in Dallas, the question everybody asks is why? Why? But, but see, from a Christian perspective, what we ask is when. God, when are you going to make things right? The Bible's a story. It's not, it's not an owner's manual. Uh, it's not a, a book of philosophy. It's, it's a story. Of course, well, what is the story? Well, I'll just give you a quick kind of overview of the story. Here's what it is. The story unfolds, you might say, in four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And, and the whole Bible, this is what we're going to be looking at for several months. We're just going to kind of be going through this, the, the first I don't know how many messages are going to be on creation, and then there's going to be some on fall and redemption and restoration, and we're just going to kind of, kind of go through it. That's sort of the, the flow. And, and, and what we need to understand is that, it, is that if you want to understand any passage in the Bible, you need to understand it in light of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. When we don't understand a passage in the Bible, it's usually because we don't understand how it fits within that overarching narrative. If you want to understand any passage of the Bible, you need to see it in light of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And if you want to see any part of your own life and understand your own life, any chapter in your own life, you have to see it in light of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It's a story. And of course, what is central to that is the climax. Redemption, that's the, that's the climax. You know, in, in every great story, um, everything points to or flows out of the climax. Everything builds up to, points to, flows out of the, the climax, right? I mean, let's just think of some of our favorite stories. Sarah, with you, one of my favorite stories, uh, the movie The Shawshank Redemption, probably my favorite movie of all time. And it's the story of this guy who gets sent to prison, wrongly accused uh, of murder, and he goes to prison. And, you know, of course, you can imagine. I mean, even if you haven't seen it, you're like, I'll bet I know what the climax is. I'll bet it's when he escapes. And you're right. That's the climax. Everything points to and flows out of the climax. What about Star Wars? Let's go old school. Star Wars. What's, what's the climax of the first Star Wars movie, right? It's, it's, right? it's when Luke pulls the visor off, whatever that thing is called, and just uses the force and goes in and blows up the Death Star. That's the climax. Everything in that movie is pointing to or, or flowing out of that. Here we go. How about this one? Ready for this? The Karate Kid. You know what the climax is? Right? Remember? The final kick and the final fight scene. I mean, the whole movie, everything points to and then, and then flows out of that. What about Jerry Maguire, right? What's the, what's, the, what's the climax? What's that climax? The whole movie points to and flows out of one line. What is it? Everybody say it. I'm like, what? I'm like, what movie did you guys see? I did not. Unbelievable. Okay. You had me at hello. The whole thing points to flows out of that. Oh, my goodness. Mental note, don't ever really ask them to respond. You just, it's just terrifying. Okay. So everything points to and flows out of the climax, right? So in the Bible, what is the climax? It's Jesus. Jesus is the climax. Redemption, Jesus is the climax. And, and so, so this is why if you want to understand any passage in the Bible, you have to see it 
in light of Jesus. If you want to understand any chapter in your own life, you have to see it in light of the climax, which is Jesus. So, the Bible is a story. It's a story. But it's not just a story. It's the story. It's the story. And what that means is that there are no parallel stories. There are no stories that can be set alongside it as sort of equal or whatever. It is the story. I mean, in other words, um, well, let's put it this way. Um, There's no story before it. I mean, let's just go right to the beginning here. Let's look at this. Genesis 1. I mean, there is so much in this first verse. There is so much just in this first verse. In the beginning... Right? I don't know about you, but my story doesn't start that way. My story starts on, on August 4th, 1976. Our nation's story starts 1776. Right? I, 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 there's a date, but there's no date here. There's no date here because there's, there's no beginning. There's nothing before it. There's no story before it. And as we'll see, there's no story after it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's just another way of saying everything. In the beginning, God created everything. It's the story of everything. There are no parallel stories. Every story, every true story is is sort of a subplot of of the story. But there can be no story that, that comes right alongside it. There can be no competing story. Of course, you know, there are different ways of telling stories. So you can tell us the same story different ways. Right, I mean, that, that, that's, that's important. I mean, even in the Bible, the Bible will sometimes tell the same story differently. That happens in a number of different places. If you, if you look at maybe uh, First and Second Kings and compare it to First and Second Chronicles, they're often telling the same story, but they'll tell it a little bit differently. Or, or how about this? In the book of Judges, Judges 4 recounts, sort of gives a historical account of the Deborah, of the, Deborah the Judge Deborah, who was the leader of Israel, and it sort of accounts their encounters with uh, the, the, the Canaanite uh, king Jabin. So that kind of gives a kind of a historical account of that. And then in Judges 5, we get a poem. And it's not about something different. It's about exactly the same thing. It's just a different way of telling the same story. We find the same thing in Exodus. We find in Exodus 14, we read about the crossing of the Red Sea. Sort of gives a, a, a sort of a historical narrative account of that. And, and, and then in, Ge- in, Genesis, or excuse me, in Exodus 15, you get a poem. And it's about the same thing. It's the same story, but it's told differently. And, and it's important for us to realize, and we'll see this, we're actually going to be looking at Genesis 1, this chapter, both this week and next week. And it's going to be important as we look at this that actually Genesis 1 is a whole lot more like Judges 5 than it is Judges 4. And Genesis 1 is a whole lot more like Exodus 15 than it is Exodus 14. In other words, it's a whole lot more like a poem than it is just a sort of straightforward historical narrative. Now, that doesn't mean that it isn't making historical claims. Poems can make historical claims. But it does mean that we have to be careful in how we read it because it's telling a story a particular way, but you can tell the same story in a different way. Let me give you a, a, an example of this. <clears throat> and in particular, what I want to, well, before I get to the example, what I want to highlight here 
is that really what Genesis 1 is doing primarily is it's addressing the question of who. It's addressing the who of creation. And this is important because it's not so much addressing the question of how. It's addressing much more the question of who as opposed to the question of of how. Uh, So I I asked Leonie when she read the, the chapter today, I asked her to emphasize the word God. And what we discover is that it occurs 32 times in 31 verses. I mean, this, this is just trying to drive home. This is God who did this. This whole thing is about who. And it's important for us to understand that this is primarily about who and not as much about how. And I think that's important for us to realize that because when we come to realize this, here's what I believe we will discover, is that the so-called conflict between the Bible and science is not nearly as stark as sometimes we think it is. Because science is primarily addressing the question of how. And this is primarily addressing the question of who. Let me kind of, okay, here's my analogy. Let me give you an example. There's a couple ways in which you can kind of tell a story. Um, again, I, I told the story of my life. Right? I, you know, I said, you know, I came, well, I give you some kind of random details, honestly, just to be fun. Uh, but, but if you looked at my life, I grew up in Laramie, Wyoming, then I went to seminary in Boston, and you could look at sort of, I could tell the story like this, well, after seminary, I was looking for a job, and so you might, you might ask, here's your question, you're like, um, well, how did you get to Rivervale? Like, tell, tell us the story of you coming to Rivervale. And I could be like, well, I was in seminary, and I was looking for a, a job in, um, out of seminary, and there was a, a worship pastor position in Maryland, and that caused me to go to Maryland, so I went to Maryland, and while I was there, the executive pastor of the church invited me to a party, and that caused me to go to this party where I met Laura, and, and then that caused, it caused us to fall in love, and then, and then together we, we were looking for a, a different kind of position, and, and we saw online uh, that this church in Rivervale was looking for a, a pastor, and so you know, we looked into that, and, and they, they, they said, hey, we'd love for you to come. We're like, we'd love to come too, and that caused us to come up here. And so I, I could tell you all that, right? Um, but you know what I could also just say? You say, hey, well, how'd you get to Rivervale? And I just say, God brought us here. Uh, they're not in conflict. One is just sort of explaining it naturally, sort of cause and effect. The other one is addressing the question of how, and the other is addressing the question of who. And you see, oftentimes, much of the conflict between the Bible and science is when we, we muddle these up, and it's when Bible readers start thinking that the Bible is saying more about the how than it really is, and the conflict also comes when scientists stop being scientists and start to try to be philosophers and theologians. Because you see, uh, when scientists deal with the how question, when, they, when, they're, when they're doing that, that, that's fine, but sometimes they start to say things that really aren't things that science can establish or prove. And, when, and we're going to actually come to that here in a minute. And when they do that, they're starting to sound a little bit like a theologian or a philosopher. And here's the point. You know what? If everybody could just stay in their own yard, we could be good neighbors. You know, I, I, I think even as Christians, Christians who maybe go into the sciences, we need to realize there doesn't necessarily need to be so much conflict that we're just looking at different questions. I mean, one of our own, uh, Michael Savoy, Ron and Carol Savoy's son, Michael, is doing a PhD in particle physics. Right? I mean, he's looking at, at the, the whole kind of nature of you know, the universe and all this kind of stuff. 
from a scientific perspective, and he knows that this, doesn't, this is not in conflict with what Genesis 1 is talking about because he's looking at the how, and Genesis 1 is telling us about the who. So this is sort of a long aside as a way of saying that, that, that the same story can be told differently, and that's okay. But what this is saying is there can be no different story. There is only one story. There is the story. And so, and so this stands against any competing story that might try to line itself up as being an alternate explanation. And so let me just highlight uh, two sort of competing stories that emerge from this text. And you won't be surprised to find out that they both relate to the question of who. Because who is really the big issue in this text. So the, the first competing story that, that this says stands up against is this idea that the universe and the world was created by other gods. Now, that, that may not be all that important to us in 21st century, but thousands of years ago in the ancient Near East, this was a big deal. Because it was a, the cultures surrounding Israel were, were cultures that, that they, they all believed, that, well, a lot of them believed that there were lots of different gods involved in creation. And so right here in the beginning, it says, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. It's saying not other gods, they're not involved. This is one God who created the whole deal. And then, and then actually we go on and we see in more subtle ways a sort of polemical attack on this as well. In verse 14 uh, through 16, let there be lights in the expanse of, of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. Now, of course, uh, what is this talking about? It's talking about the sun and the moon. And we need to understand that in that culture, most of the surrounding cultures, they they did not think of the sun as a burning ball of hydrogen uh, that the earth went around. And they didn't think about uh, the moon as, as you know, like a rock. I think that's what it is, a rock that's kind of going around the earth. They thought of them as gods. And so, so when this comes out and says, oh, you know what, by the way, your gods, our God created your gods. That's what this is saying. This is a slap in the face to the religions that dominated the, the area at that time. They said, yeah, yeah, your gods there, they were created by our God. And then this is really interesting. Notice this. It doesn't actually refer to them as the sun and the moon. It doesn't even use those words. It calls it greater light and lesser light. You see, it, it's even hinting at it saying, you know what? Our God created your gods, and guess what? They're not really even gods anyway. They're created things. And so ironically, far from, I think, standing in conflict with a lot of what science has to say, Genesis 1 actually helps to create the worldview in which scientific inquiry can happen in the first place. And here's why. I'll just put it very crudely. Science is not very good at studying gods. Science doesn't do that. Science doesn't study gods. Science studies things. Science studies things. And so, you know, if you live in a world where you just think everything's a bunch of gods going around, there's not really any place to even be thinking about scientific inquiry. But when you come to understand that these are created things, things that you might actually be able to study, 
You see, this doesn't stand against a scientific worldview. It actually rises above it and actually creates the even worldview climate that enables scientific inquiry to take place in the first place. So this is standing against, again, it's standing against the idea that other gods created this. So it's, again, addressing the question of who. It's saying, no, not other gods. It's our God. Our God is the one who created all things. So it stands against that competing story. And then I think we can also infer from it another competing story, which is more common today. And that is that it is standing against the story that would say that everything is here by chance. Everything is here by chance. You see, our society today, our modern secular world, you know, they could actually embrace Genesis 1 very easily. Especially when they, if they come to understand um, that it's, it's, it's poetic nature and whatnot. Really, there's not a whole lot that they would disagree with. Um, they would just need to change one word. Just one word. God. The problem is, they'd have to change it 32 times. You see, the secular world could love to have this. I mean, this is great literature. I mean, even people who don't believe recognize this is incredible literature. This, this could very easily be a part of modern secularism's liturgy. Just change one word. In the beginning, chance created the heavens and the earth. Verse 6, and chance said, let there be an expanse. And chance said, let the water under the sky. You see, all they'd have to do is insert the word chance. So here's what we need to understand. What's going on in Genesis 1, this is an important but subtle distinction. And that is that the conflict is not so much um, between God and science. It's between God and and philosophy? That's the real question. So let me kind of unpack that just for a minute here. You see, when a a scientist says something like, when science just kind of gives natural explanations for things, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what they're supposed to do. A scientist is supposed to give a natural explanation for things. But then when a scientist goes on and says, oh, this happened by chance, and that's all it is. The scientist has ceased to be a scientist, and they've become a philosopher. They've stopped ask, answering the, the, the how question, and now they're trying to answer the why question, and that's just not what science is designed to do in the first place. Again, if we can just keep to our own yards, people, this is not going to be nearly as much of a problem. And so what this is standing against is saying, no, this is not created by chance. You were not created by chance. You are not a mistake. You are here with purpose. You are here for a reason. You were created by God, not by chance. That's the story that this this competes with. It is the story. It's not, a, it's not a story that you can put another story alongside it. So, so let, me, let, me, let me go back again. Three, three points here about the Bible. It is a story. It is the story. And finally, it's his story. It's his story. Again, the word God occurs 32 times. And so what this is telling us is, listen, 
This isn't your story. This isn't my story. This is his story. You know, how are we to respond when we read something like, like Genesis? Well, how, how do I think, what does God intend for us? How does he intend for us to respond when we read and pray and meditate on Genesis 1? And I would suspect that, that we get a glimpse of how God would want us to respond to reading Genesis 1 if we look at Isaiah 6. Let me read for you Isaiah 6. You can turn there if you'd like to. This is Isaiah 6, beginning on page 680 of your pew Bibles. And here in Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah encounters God. He has an encounter with God. And I want us to see how Isaiah responds. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then in verse 2, we get another description of another weird, creepy angel. I mean, they just love these creepy angels in this prophetic literature, right? But these angels are, are, are flying around, and what are they saying? This is similar to what we find in Revelation 4.8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, Isaiah encounters the presence of God and and sees this is the God where all of earth, His glory fills everything. And of course, this is exactly what Genesis 1 is trying to get us to see. It's trying to get us to see the fullness of the glory of God revealed in creation. So I think when we read Genesis 1, what God intends for us to do is to respond and have an experience similar to what Isaiah has in this passage. And then in verse 5, we see how does Isaiah respond. And look what Isaiah says. He says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You know what I think Isaiah is saying here? He's saying, woe is me. I've been living out my story. I've been living amongst a people who have been trying to live out their story, their individual stories, and, and they're trying to live out their story. But, but I've come to realize this isn't about my story. It's about his story. So the question which I think Genesis 1 really really presses us with is simply this. Have you surrendered your story to his story? Have you surrendered your story to his story? Because at the heart of Jesus' message is this. Jesus says, if anyone wants to save his life, he will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What he's saying is, whoever wants to write their own story is going to find that that does not lead to anything. That is not making it on the New York Times bestseller list. You're going to find that in the church garage sale for one cent. Whoever wants to save his life, whoever wants to write his own story... That story is going absolutely nowhere. Whoever wants to write his own story, that's going nowhere. But whoever surrenders their own story to God's story, that's what leads to life. Have you surrendered your story 
to God's story. You say, you know what, God, I've been going my own way. In other words, is your story uh, a subplot or is it really the main plot? What is it in your life? Is your story the main plot? God kind of fit him in? Or, Or is your story a subplot of the main plot? Have you surrendered your story to his story? I am really grateful for how last week uh, many of you uh, came, kind of rose to the occasion and, and helped to uh, make sure the church went on when I had to be gone at the last minute. Um, Josh Rasdell from Montvale came and preached, and I just love that guy. He is just a wonderful man, godly man, and a wonderful preacher that is, I'm like, let's just bring him here as much as we can. And he's always willing. I called him like on Thursday. I'm like, can you come? He's like, yeah, I'd love to come. So I'm incredibly grateful for him. I'm grateful for the music team that really stepped up and just kind of took the reins uh, while I was gone and and many others as well. And I thank all of you for praying for us. If you don't know why we left, um, a friend of ours uh, had a a tragic accident and drowned uh, in Lake Michigan this past week. And uh, his wife is a very close friend of ours, and he was 33. They, they're just a young family with just a few small kids about, about our age. And so we, we had to go to the funeral, and I was honored. I had the opportunity to be a part of the funeral and to give sort of a closing prayer. And, uh, of course, when, when, you, when you engage something like that, you know, there are just so many questions that emerge from something like that. And one of the questions that emerges particularly for Valerie, our, our, our friend, uh, uh, whose husband passed away. And, and a question that has been emerging for her is, where do I go from here? What do I do now? And I want to close by reading you a, a Facebook post, which she put up just a few days ago. Dreams have been smashed. Plans we carefully sketched out and formed the guide for our future adventures are now torn. So now I ask which way, and I don't know. Which way do I walk? Where do I go now? I do not hear the rumored voice of God saying, this is the way, walk in it. I would never have chosen this path, nor can I see the way out of this darkness. But I can trust with what strength I have left. I can trust in the faithfulness of the one who has the true map, whose plan has not been torn apart, but made perfect. So which way? I don't know, and I don't care. I simply want the Lord's way. Have you surrendered your story to his story? Oh, dear God, we, we confess the weakness of our own imaginations and our failure to use them as we approach to understand the magnitude of who you are. God, I pray that you would stretch our imaginations, help us to see that you can't be 
put in a box, that you created the box. God, help us to not seek to dissect you, but to simply humble ourselves before you. God, I pray that that each and every day we would grow to a greater understanding of your sheer magnitude, your presence, your glory fills every inch of our world. God, may we just laugh at the silliness of our own attempts to write stories of which you're only a part. God, may we find life in surrendering our stories to your story. In Jesus' name we pray.